hope you all are doing well this morning. Before I forget, pirate ship kids, you know what time it is. You guys are dismissed. <laughs> That's an excited bunch of kids. <laughs> so this time of year can be an extremely time, busy time of year, can't it? we got a lot going on. There's a lot of dinners to go to. We just had a, a Christmas party here this past Friday. There's parties. There's things to plan. There's things to do. It's busy mainly because we're preparing for Christmas, right? We're decorating. We're getting the ornaments just right. We're pulling out the Christmas lights. We're hanging them. My dad and I started Christmas Day putting Christmas lights on the outside of our house. Some of you have been listening to Christmas music for multiple months now in your vehicle. Like back in October before Halloween, I know there's a few of you that like to start listening to Christmas music. My wife, I think, would listen to Christmas music all year if she could. And I have to try and put the stop on that, but I'm not very good at it. Um, but it's a time of, of preparation. We're preparing for the birth of Jesus. We're preparing to celebrate his birth into this world. I can remember there was, there was months leading up to our first son, Gaines, when, when we found out he was going to be born, the months leading up to that was a time of preparation for us. Much like a lot of us who have had babies in here, when you find out you're having a baby, your mind kind of explodes for a minute. You look around your house and you think, oh my goodness, we are not ready for a baby. We need to prepare. And so what do you do? You find all the sharp corners. You put little cushy things on the soft corners so if the baby runs into it face first, hopefully it won't hurt itself very badly. We put those little plastic things in the electrical socket so when the baby gets older, he won't jam something in there and shoot himself across the living room. We, we, we got a crib. We put his crib together in his bedroom. We hung pictures on the wall. We got a dresser. We put diapers in the dresser. We put baby clothes in the dresser to prepare. So when that day came and we go to the hospital and Gaines was born, when it was time to come home with him, we would be ready. We would be ready to come home and have this baby, and we wouldn't be playing catch-up at that point. So we spent time in preparation. So for us as a church, this is also a season of preparation. One way you could look at it, this is a, a season of making room. See, we may be prepared at our houses with ornaments and decorations and things like that, and we have our calendars planned out. But let me ask you guys something. Are you spiritually prepared? Are you spiritually prepared for this season? Over the next few weeks, that's why we've decided to call this series that we're going to go through Make Room. Because this is a time for us to make room or prepare spiritually to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So this man, Jesus, is a man that, that we talk about every Sunday. We come here. We sing praises to him. We worship him. We say it's all for Jesus. If you're a believer, you've put all of your faith and trust in this man. So this morning, I want to ask you guys a question. Why? Why Jesus? Why do we need to prepare? Why do we need to make room? Why do we need to put so much emphasis on celebrating his birth? 
why do we need Jesus to save us? So this morning, I want you guys to turn your brains on. You've got to stick with me, okay? Um, my wife and I were talking a few nights ago, and she loves to read before she falls asleep at night. One of her favorite things to read, she loves reading epics. Now, if you're not familiar with what an epic is, it's a giant story, but it's made up of tiny little stories within it. And at first glance, these stories are all taking place in different places. And you may wonder why they even relate to each other to begin with. Why? Why are we reading a story that's happening and then you, the, it's like the author goes to a completely different location and starts telling another story of another thing that's happening and then he goes to another place and tells a story. And in the end, in the end, all of these stories come crashing together in one moment. They come crashing together and all of a sudden, the whole first part of the book and everything that you've just read, all the separate stories make sense when they come together. And my wife loves reading these stories. So this morning, it's going to be a little bit like that. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. And at times, it may not make sense why we're going to where we're going. But stick with me. Keep your brains turned on because trust me, I promise you, it's going to make sense in the end. So back to the question of why Jesus. Why do we need the rescue? The rescue we need. Why do we need God's salvation? Why do we need that? And to just cut to the quick this morning, to be blunt and honest with you guys, to, we need salvation because God is opposed to every expression of evil. Okay? Okay? Anything that is morally wrong in our character or in lives of the people around us or sin, God is opposed to that. But not only is he, is he just opposed to it, he's violently opposed to it, okay? He's violently opposed, and he will and is making known his wrath against that evil. His steady anger against any and all God ungodliness and unrighteousness. He is, he's actively coming against millions and millions and billions of acts of unrighteousness in the world at this very moment. So, if this is happening, if God opposes this and he, he's coming against it, why aren't more people turning away from it? Why aren't, why aren't humans and and why aren't they turning in the masses and running and turning back to God? If this holy and just God is, 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 is this way, why aren't we turning? And I think a place that we can find an answer to that is Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 18 says, it says this, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who, by what? It says, by their unrighteousness, what is it, they, it says they do? It says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth or hide the truth. See, we have truth. We have truth in the scriptures and in the word. It's right in front of us. But it's in, it's in our rebellion. It's in that unrighteousness that what we're actually doing is, is suppressing and hiding the truth. Okay, let me ask you guys this. 
How often, when we mess up, we make a mistake, how often is our response to give a reason or an excuse as to why we made that mistake? How often, how often, I'll put it this way, how often when we mess up, do we look at somebody else that we think might be a little worse than us and we say, yeah, I messed up, I made that mistake, I'm this way, but look at that person. Look at what they're doing. At least I didn't murder anybody, right? We say that a lot. Like, yeah, I did this, but I didn't murder anybody. What happens when we do that is we're taking the truth of the situation and, and by making that excuse and deflecting the attention away from us and deflecting the attention on maybe on somebody else, we're, we're slightly changing or we're distorting the truth. So what happens when we distort the truth is the truth is becoming a lie. See, we need someone who knows everything about us, who knows all of this about us, and yet loves us anyway. We need someone that's willing to take the judgment, willing to pay the penalty, to pay the consequence for our unrighteousness. We need them to pay it on our behalf. We need someone who is strong enough Guys, to put it bluntly, we need someone that's strong enough to, ha- to take the hell that we deserve, that we have coming to us from a holy and just God, and yet that person is still pure enough to take the sin and the guilt away. What we need, we literally need someone that can come in and begin to change each and every one of us. From the inside out. So with that, we have a birth announcement. With that, we we look in Isaiah. With that, we have the scripture that we're going to today. So you can start turning there. Go to Isaiah 9. With all of that, we have a birth announcement. And it's a birth announcement that happens about 700 years before the actual birth takes place. Okay? So starting... Going to Isaiah, starting in verse 1. Let me get there myself. Starting in verse 1, let's read. We're going to read 1 through 7. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government of, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So most birth announcements today happen after the woman's pregnant, right? Not before. They happen after. We find out that you find out you're pregnant. You find out that, that you're going to have a baby. And what you want to do is you want to make the announcement to people. Hey, we're about to have a baby. There's a baby coming into this world. And so especially today with social media and everything like it is, we come up with these cool ways, these clever ways, these cute and adorable ways to make this announcement to everybody, to put it out there for the world to see. One of the first parts of our preparation for Gaines when he was born was to let everybody know he's going to be born. Like, we're going to have the baby. That's one of the first things we did. Now, fellas, I'm going to tell you a story about how this announcement took place. And this story, if you have not had a kid yet, this is what not to do. Learn from my mistake and learn what not to do. And you'll see why in just a second. So, it came to the day that, that we were ready. I was very excited to make this announcement, and we were going to put it on social media. And my wife was at work, and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this announcement. And this, guys, this is partially just my sense of humor. It's, my sense of humor is weird sometimes, okay? I thought this would be funny. I thought people would think it was great. I thought they would laugh at it. And, um, well, I decided to go on social media and post this picture. In case you guys are wondering, those are tests. There's a, there's a standardized test that you can take when you think you might be having a baby. And if you get a passing grade or if you get a good little symbol like that on there, you know you've gotten the passing grade and you're going to have a baby. So without telling my wife I was about to do this, I put this on social media and said, hey, world, guess what? We're going to have a baby. So a little bit of background behind this picture, why there's three. Gains was not something that we were planning on happening. We didn't set out at that point in time to have a baby. So one day, Nicole comes in, and she says, something's weird. I think I might be pregnant. And I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> she said, no, I think I am. So she goes, she takes the first standardized test. I'm sitting in the living room, and she walks out holding it, and it's got the positive result. And I was like, that thing's old. I don't believe it. You're not pregnant. So then we go to the store. I said, we need more tests to prove that the first test was, in fact, correct. So we go to the store. We buy the box, and I made her take all that was in the box to be sure. And so we come up with three standardized tests, all agreeing that, yes, you're going to have a baby. So the reason there's three in that picture was because I was not ready to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but then once it happened, I thought it was funny. So that's how we made the announcement. So guys, don't do that. <laughs> I'm still apologizing to my wife today for doing that. Now, I did learn for, for Malachi for our second we came together, we talked, I said, how you want to do this? And whatever she said, I agreed to. I said, yes, 
and it was beautiful. Um, and we now have two, two boys. Um, so don't do that, fellas. So anyways, back to the birth announcement that's happening here in Isaiah, Isaiah 9. I think, I think it's important to know, it's important to look at in, in what's happening surrounding this birth announcement. What's happening in the time that Isaiah is making this announcement? What's happening when Isaiah is telling this, when he's making this statement, he's making this statement to the Hebrew nation. Now the Hebrew nation is in the process of being wiped away under the rule of a man named King Ahaz, okay? King Ahaz's father was a man named King Jotham. And King Jotham's father, or King Ahaz's grandfather, was a man named King Uzziah, okay? Now, we have genealogies given in Scripture. If you were to look, both of these men... King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz are direct descendants in the blood. They're not right after, but they're direct descendants of a man known as King David. Okay? King David. King David is the man who killed Goliath as a kid. Okay? King David, the man who became king after Solomon. King Uzziah, King Ahaz, and King Jotham are all direct descendants of David. And David, if you look even further back in the scripture, is the direct descendant in the bloodline of a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham is the man way back in the Old Testament that doesn't have any kids. He's super old. He he doesn't have any kids yet. He's 99, in fact. When he's 99, God comes to him and says, he gives Abraham a promise. He says, I'm going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. At 99, Abraham gets this news. He then has Isaac, his child. This is the same man that was prepared and ready to sacrifice his first child, but God provides a way out. So that's the Abraham. So Abraham, then you have King David, Goliath killer, and then you have King Uzziah, King Jotham, and King Ahaz, okay? Now, King Uzziah and King Jotham were men, and they were they were kings who feared the Lord. They were, they were kings who led a nation and sought the wisdom of God in leading the nation. But Ahaz, young Ahaz, was not. Okay? Ahaz, his, he's in his 20s. He's going against what his father and grandfather have taught him. He's in his 20s, and he's leading a nation who is facing a national crisis. He's leading a nation of God's people, and not only because of his leadership are they struggling internally, they're they're beginning to decay spiritually, but on the outside, they're facing attack from several different enemy armies. And what's happening is, is they're beginning to panic. But then Isaiah comes in. Isaiah has a vision from God, and he's been sent by God. And he's been sent by God to give the nation of Judah, the the people that are under the rule of King Ahaz, he's been sent to provide promises. Promises given by God. If you look back at Isaiah 7, two chapters before where we're at, if you look back in Isaiah 7, you can see God working. He's working to, to move Ahaz's faith. 
And how is he doing that? He's working to move Ahaz's faith with assurances, with, with an amazing sign that Isaiah speaks. It's an amazing sign that, that in, ver- in chapter 7 it says, specifically verse 14, it says, A virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel or God with us. So he gives this assurance, this miraculous sign. But what does he also do? If you rewind back a little bit farther to to verse 9 in chapter 7, he gives Ahaz a warning. He tells Ahaz through Isaiah, God tells Ahaz through Isaiah, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So Ahaz hears these words, and what does he decide to do? Does he turn to God? Does he seek God's guidance? Does he seek to take refuge in God and lead his people to God? No, he doesn't. Instead, what he decides to do is make an alliance with Assyria. Assyria is a wicked, treacherous, pagan nation, and Assyria has already wreaked havoc in northern Judah. So where this takes place, we're in southern Judah. Assyria has already wreaked havoc in northern Judah. And Ahaz decides to create an alliance with this pagan nation. So what Ahaz is essentially doing is Ahaz is trading the presence of God for an alliance with a pagan nation. He's trading the presence of God. Ahaz is suppressing the truth. He's hiding the truth. And in doing this, what happens is the wrath of God begins to be revealed against their ungodliness. Chapter 8, the next chapter, we see this begin to unfold. We see God's judgment begin to unfold. In chapter 8, Isaiah shows this unfold. Judah, what he, he gives wording, and what it, the, the picture we get in Isaiah 8 is Judah begins to give in to despair. They begin to give in to gloom. And so what do they do? They've turned from God. They've departed from God. They're clawing. They're trying to find anything that they can. And what God is doing, he's taking a step back, and he's handing them over to their decisions, to their sin and their unrighteousness. He let them have the choice, and he's letting the consequences take effect from their choices. These people are clawing. It's becoming dark. They're looking for hope in any place they can find it. They're they're looking for, for hope in things like the occult. They're looking to false gods. King Ahaz's plans are continuing to fail. King Ahaz, if you were to look in 2 Kings, there's a story in 2 Kings. King Ahaz even offers a burnt sacrifice of his own son to, to pagan Canaanite gods in order to try and, try and find some sort of hope to get out of this darkness, to get out of this despair, to get out of this gloom. And it's not working. These people are experiencing God's judgment. But let me ask you all something. When we run from God, when we turn from Him, when we reject the promises that He's given us, when we tell Him we think 
we got it, we think we can handle things, when we basically say, thanks God, but no thanks, I think I got this. When we do this, is His judgment the only thing we can expect? Is this all we should expect here in our own nation? Is judgment God's only response in this situation? See, the beautiful thing, the beautiful answer in all of this, we don't have to read much farther. We don't have to look farther in Scripture to see, to hear the loud, the emphatic, the resounding answer of no. That is not all we can expect. See, God, what he does is he uses his judgment to warn us, to let us know that that there is wrath that's coming. But what he also does is calls us back. He beckons us back. He beckons us back and calls us back with his love and his kindness. He makes a way, he prepares a way, he plans a way to deal with our sin and our unrighteousness and our godlessness. He makes a way to deal with that. And guys, that's the best and most assuring news that we could ever hear or ever hope for, that God's judgment and wrath is not the only thing we can expect. Something happens between chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Isaiah. Something happens with Isaiah. In chapter 8, Isaiah is right in the middle of telling the people what they can expect because of their departure and because of their turning from God. He's right in the middle of it. And it's like right in the middle of that moment, the Holy Spirit visits Isaiah and gives him a vision. And in this vision, it's like, it's like he fast-forwards time for Isaiah. And all of a sudden, Isaiah can see the future and God's plans for the future. And in this vision, as, as the Holy Spirit is, is kind of fast-forwarding time, the vision that, that Isaiah sees is so contrasting. It's so different to the darkness that Judah is experiencing. And it's absolutely beautiful and stunning. In chapter 9, in verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2 of Isaiah, what does it say? It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Instead of bondage and slavery... As hundreds and thousands are taken as prisoners of war by invading enemy forces. Instead of that, Isaiah is describing a day, verse 4. In verse 4, he describes a day, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. Instead of constant war, instead of constant fighting, Isaiah sees the end of this. Verse 5, it says, For the tramping boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will what? They will be burned 
as fuel for the fire. See, right in the middle of telling of God's much-deserved wrath and judgment, right in the middle of this, wars, rumors of war surrounding Judah, Isaiah is describing salvation and rescue for sinners. Let me say that one more time. Right in the middle of wars and rumors of war that are surrounding God's people, right in the middle of describing this judgment, what Isaiah describes to them, what he gives them, what he tells them is of salvation and of rescue for sinners. Light is coming. Instead of fear, instead of futility, instead of bondage and guilt overtaking God's people, joy in God is going to overtake them. It's a people that deserve nothing but wrath. It's a people that deserve nothing but judgment from a perfectly holy and just God. And these people are going to experience a complete victory over their enemies. Why? Because of God's love and of his kindness for them. God's plan to restore the relationship with his people is through a man that Isaiah describes the character of. He tells of a man that's coming. He describes the character of this man in chapter in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. Let's read those verses again. Starting in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what does this tell us? It tells us first that this Savior that's coming is going to be born as a human. It says a child, to us a child will be born. But it also tells us that this child is going to be given to us by God. This child will be divine. So we know that this divine human, we, we get four names that describe his character, okay? These names, what they do is they tell us what this baby is going to do. How many times when we see a birth announcement do we see a description of what that baby's going to do? How many times have you seen a birth announcement and the parents say, my little girl is going to be a champion marathon runner. My little boy is going to be the CEO of a major company. My little girl is going to get all A's in school or maybe my kid ain't going to do so good in school. How often do we see that? Never. We never see it because they haven't happened yet. The child has not accomplished these things yet. They haven't done these things. Birth announcements don't list accomplishments because there are none. But this baby is different. And these names that are listed to describe his character are only names that can be given to God. How? Let's take a look at them. First, we have... We have Wonderful Counselor. 
Or one way you could word it is wonder of a counselor. The word wonderful here meaning marvelous, extraordinary, beyond the normal capacity to perform. Okay? So the counsel of this divine man goes beyond normal human wisdom. He doesn't need counsel from anyone else. He doesn't need counsel from any of us. Okay? Romans, if we go to Romans 11, verse 34, you don't have to turn there because I'll tell you what it says. But if we were to go there, Romans eleven thirty four, what it does is it reminds us that this wonderful counselor, it reminds us that his judgment and his ways are unsearchably deep. Romans eleven thirty four says, Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? How many of you guys here today could raise your hand and say, yep, I need counsel from a man like that. I need a counselor like that. Maybe some of you here have a counselor. How many of you here wish and say that you could use counsel from, from this man? I know I could. But let's look at the second name. What's the second name that's given? The second name is Mighty God. Literally, literally, this title, we could, we, could, we could reword it. We could say it as the heroic, strong God. This child is God's son, and he's the second person of the Trinity. And, and in this title, we see that he has all the power of God. Everything that God has, this man has also. So, if you were to take this title and put it with the previous one, Mighty God with Wonderful Counselor, what it means is, it means that this child that is going to be born, this God become man, has the ability to carry out to the fullest extent all that God's brilliant plan calls for. That's why God's able to say, that's why he's able to say, my plan will take place, and I will do all of my will. You can read that in Isaiah 46. He says this, my plan will take place, and I will accomplish all of my will. This king that is to come is so powerful that he can, he can literally take and absorb all the evil that is going to be thrown at him. All the evil that will be thrown at him from Satan and from the world until there is none left to throw. He will be able to take and absorb all that evil and he will still defeat his enemy. He will still defeat our enemies. I don't know about you guys, but church, I need this. I need this this person in my life. In this world we live in, guys, if I'm being honest, I get tired. I get weak. There's days I don't think I can, I can carry on anymore, you know? You come to the end of some days and you're like, you want to throw up your hands and say, I'm done. I got nothing left to give. I'm too weak. I'm too tired. I'm too worn out to carry on. I need this king in my life. I need a champion who's strong enough to keep his word to me. I need this Savior who's mighty enough to break the power of sin that I have in my own life. 
I need this man. But the titles, they don't stop here. What's the third title? Everlasting Father. Father forever. This child is to be a father to me, to all of us, in the best of ways. How? Psalm 103 describes him as as loving, self-sacrificing, always looking out for our best. Guys, the fatherly compassion from this king is never, ever, ever going to come to an end. He's our father forever. So put this title with the two before. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. When you do this, you begin to realize that the plans of this Wonderful Counselor will always have our best as a goal. The plans will also be, what they're going to be coupled with a deep, deep, loving involvement in our lives. And guys, that's what it means to be a father forever. Some of you, some of us have been blessed with some amazing examples of dads. Dads that when you look at, you can point at and say, that's a great dad. That's a great father. Some of you may have not. You may have grown up not knowing what it looks like to have a dad or have a great example of what a dad looks like. But this example right here that's given to us of a father, a father forever, is the most perfect. It's the most perfect example of a loving father we could ever get. And here's the greatest thing. He desires a relationship with us. He desires a relationship with us. And what's even better, his love for us never ends. Father forever. Eternal, everlasting Father. Finally, the last title, the final, the fourth title that we get in this description, Prince of Peace. He's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to conquer and win over the hearts of his people. He's going to start something as a child that verse 7 in chapter 9 of Isaiah, it says will never stop growing. And he's going to do all of this without force, without brute force. How? He brings peace. And by bringing peace, he is disarming the enemy. He is disarming Satan. He is disarming the unrighteousness. So the wondrous, the wonderful plans of our counselor, who has all it takes to accomplish all of his plans, all of his designs, will only and always do what's right and best for us. He'll never strong arm or force us. He calls us. He beckons us. And he wins us with his kindness, with his love, with his faithfulness, with his goodness. And for me, 
when I experience that, I want to do his will. I want to serve him. I want to follow the plans that he has. See, Isaiah, Isaiah sees this man. Isaiah saw this man coming 700 years before he actually was born. He sees the one who is God's answer, God's plan for a reconciled relationship with sinners, like the people of Judah and just like us. If you guys can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1, first book, first chapter of the New Testament. There's something really cool that you can read here. Turn to Matthew 1. What Matthew 1 starts at, when you begin to read it, is a genealogy. I know a lot of you guys may have read genealogies before, and you're like, "Ah, that's kind of boring. I read genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so, was born a so-and-so, and on and on and on, and eventually you're like zoned out reading it. But take a close look, and what do we see in this genealogy in Matthew 1? We see Abraham, who we talked about earlier, towards the beginning. A little bit farther down, a few generations later, we see David, King David, Goliath killer. And then a little bit farther down, who do we see? We see King Ahaz, the young leader who is leading the nation of Judah. The, the, the leader that was leading his nation into darkness. We see Ahaz directly in this bloodline, okay? But then continue to read. If you read farther down, if you were to go through the generations, if you were to count, it would be 18 generations. If you go down 18 generations, who do we read about? What's what's the name that we see? This man is born directly in the same bloodline as Abraham, as King David, as King Uzziah, as King Jotham, then as King Ahaz. We see the name Joseph. Joseph, the same man who is set to marry Mary. The woman who is going to give birth to a man named Jesus. If you were to look down past the genealogy in Matthew 1, Mary's pregnant. Joseph's not aware of what's going on yet. All he sees is his future bride's pregnant. And he has made up his mind to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to draw too much attention. He does have a little bit of class. So he's made up his mind to divorce her quietly because he's not aware of what's taking place and happening. And so an angel visits him. Okay? An angel visits Joseph in a dream. And what is it that the angel says to Joseph? He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 7. He says, for to us, a child is going to be born. Remember 700 years before when Isaiah is telling this to Ahaz as a promise and an assurance? The angel quotes this to Joseph. He says, for to us, a child is born, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel, or God with us. God's plan to reconcile his relationship 
with his people. God's plan to do this out of loving kindness for all of us has been established and has been there all along. And he establishes it through this divine God-man of Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus 700 years before he was born. Isaiah saw the wonderful counselor who was to come with wisdom and purpose, with a perfect plan. And all we have to do is follow him. Isaiah saw Jesus as the mighty God who was going to accomplish God's purposes and plans. See, Satan, Satan throws everything he can at Jesus. He's going to throw everything he can at Jesus, and it still won't derail God's plan for redemption for us, for reconciliation for us, for a restored relationship with us. As the everlasting Father, Jesus loves us endlessly. There's no end or bounds to the love that he has for us. And we can rest in that, and we can take comfort in that, and we can take comfort in just being in his presence. We can take comfort in being in the presence of the Prince of Peace. Because his peace is what is going to reconcile that relationship with us. His peace will reconcile it while we're still sinners, while we are still enemies. All we have to do is trust him. All we have to do is welcome his plan and welcome his rule into our own lives. Church, that's what I want us to take time and put our focus on. To take time and prepare for celebrating the birth of this man. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you haven't experienced that love and salvation, I want to introduce you to him. If you have experienced that love and salvation, I want to reintroduce you to him. Uh, one of my favorite drummers out there, um, I follow him on the, on the social medias, and, and he put something out the other day, and he's got, he's got very young kids. And basically what he was saying is he was so excited for this season to come because there was things that he got excited about as a kid for Christmas and, and the view that he had of Christmas as a kid. And in some ways as he got older, he forgot some of that excitement. He forgot what it meant. But he has young kids now who are excited. He sees the wonder in their eyes, and he says, my kids, because I'm seeing it through them, I'm being reintroduced. I'm seeing again the excitement and the wonder of Christmas. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, church, that's what I want us to do. I want us to be reintroduced to the excitement and the wonder of the man that is Jesus. I want us to put our focus on him. I want us to make room for him. I want us to be excited to celebrate the birth. He's our world's greatest king. His wisdom, his kingdom, his peace will never end. He's the savior that all of us need. He's brought restoration to our relationship with a just and a holy God. 
when we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment, he paid the penalty for us. He took the consequence for us. He did that for us, and he loves us. So Creekside Church, I want to bring it back full circle. And I want to ask you guys the same question that we started with. I want you to leave here continuing to ask yourself this question. Why Jesus? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to this world. Thank you so much that when we deserved your judgment, your wrath, when there was nothing we could do on our own except claw our way darker into darker and darker places full of sin and full of struggle, thank you for making a way for us to deal with that. God, thank you that that you gave Isaiah a vision of what this man would look like to come. Thank you that you've provided a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace to pave the way for us to to have a relationship with you. I pray that as a church, over the next few weeks as we're preparing for this Christmas time of year, I pray that we will put our focus and our trust on Jesus, the wonder that is Jesus, that we would make room and, and prepare our hearts, that we would prepare spiritually to celebrate this man. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not experienced that salvation with you, I pray that they would. I pray that they would experience the joy, the wonder, and the salvation of your love and grace. Lord, we love you. It's all this through Jesus that I pray. Amen.